everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going to be breaking down the BWR Kansas gravel race that we did together last weekend. I, I have not spoken to Andrew since minutes after the start line. So I'm, I'm excited to, to debrief with him a little bit. And then we're going to talk about where BWR stands in the, the gravel calendar currently and gravel just generally as a discipline. Like, what did we think? What were our takeaways? Does this actually have legs to grow in the future? Or is this just uh, a fad that we'll all get over soon? And then maybe talk a little bit about gravel worlds and how we thought that played out. But Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast, Choose the Hard Way, before we get going? Choose the Hard Way is a podcast that is about exactly what Spencer and I went to do at Belgian Waffle Ride, Kansas. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about today. It's about the idea that hard things build stronger humans who have more fun. And my next guest coming up next week is Joe DeSena, who's the creator of the Spartan Race and all related series and a uh, serial entrepreneur and endurance athlete. Started out on Wall Street made it big and then made his life all about uh, facilitating personal growth through physical challenges. Speaking of physical challenges, um, let's get amongst it, Spencer. Belgian Waffle Ride, Kansas. Now, I want to say originally we started playing around with this idea, I think back in February or March, perhaps is kind of a joke. And <laughs> it, had been a, it had been a minute since I'd been on the line at a very major gravel event. I don't believe you had ever done one. And if you're just tuning in, I do want to let people know that kind of the headline here today is that Spencer Martin, creator of Beyond the Peloton, will be joining the Lifetime Grand Prix in 2024. So <laughs> he's, he's coming back. I learned a little bit about the difference between a former professional athlete and someone living in rural Maine trying their hardest at this event. And I can tell you that Spencer is in prime condition to enter the Lifetime Grand Prix. I know we have a lot of listeners from the Lifetime organization. Spencer would like to step away from the microphone, and he wants to get amongst it out there at uh, Lifetime Grand Prix 24. Yeah, the lifestyle I can. Yeah, I can. It totally lines up with the life I want, the lifestyle I want to lead. I mean, I all jokes aside, I was shocked at how hard that race was. As you say, it kind of started as a joke. Um, I, I don't know when we stopped joking and when it became real, uh, originally we had this idea and we'll talk, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but I think we have to address the fact that like originally we were going to do a live show at sunflower. This was our idea with, uh, Dan Hughes as our special guest, talk about gravel festival of gravel. It all kind of goes sideways when I guess sunflower and Lawrence, the Lawrence community and BWR all get in a fight about the policy of the gen the gender policy they i don't know why we don't need to get into that but things do not go well bwr kind of gets kicked out to like the outskirts of town which i thought was a little maybe hurt the vibe a little bit of the race we were kind of starting and finishing in north lawrence which i'm i'm never i the race the road we started on i'd never been on that road in my life so you would say it's like not the uh the most prime time part of town but we we that fell apart. We get there. We do the race. I text you the day before. I go out and pre-ride the course. I was thinking, man, should we just do the 34-mile version? Like, this is pretty hard. <laughs> I was shocked at how, A, how bad the gravel was. I mean, I was trying to warn you in, in previous podcasts that this gravel was really, really rough, like ch chunder, you could call it, just rocks. I was worn out after maybe five minutes on it in the pre-ride, and it was so windy. It's always so windy there. It's really demoralizing. I, and then I text you, I was like, should we do the 34 mile version? There's like a booth you can switch your uh, event at instead of the 82 mile version. You kind of laugh it off. I'm thinking, I guess like you can't really be the host of choose the hard way podcast. And then you're like choosing to do the uh, significantly easier option. But I was nervous. Let, let's just on the, the night before the race, I'm thinking this was a bad idea. Why did I come? This is miserable. Um, and I apparently at a lot of BWR events, there is a lot of pavement, like after, right after the race, I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is terrible. And then the next day I'm like looking up BWR Arizona, like, oh, that course looks interesting. Maybe I'll go down for that. But this, this Lawrence one is just all gravel pretty much. It's a, maybe four or five miles of pavement. 
absolutely brutal on the gravel. And I didn't prepare that well for this. Like if I'm being completely honest, like during the Vuelta, I'm maybe doing six, seven hour weeks on the bike, um, coming into this with, with low training loads. I, I mean, my fitness score was in the sixties, like two weeks before the race. I'm thinking this, this could not go well. So I, I was happy with how I did. I totally botched on the single track. I, I must've had a multi-minute lead going into the single track at the end. I was worried I was going to lose it all, but I was happy to finish. I was impressed, Andrew, with with how well I think we should say that. I so I get sixth. You got thirteenth. That's I think those are pretty good finishes for a couple of podcasters, don't you think? Yeah, I think they're good results. Unfortunately, I trained pretty hard for this event, and you still totally kicked my ass. But you know that's how it goes sometimes. I also wanted to just rewind for a minute because you mentioned that it was a little bit windy. I if you don't live in the Midwest, I'm not sure you understand quite how windy it is in rural Kansas when that wind kicks up. You, of course, are probably familiar with the Wizard of Oz. And I think that that's, you know, kind of gives you a sense of the level of wind you might be dealing with. We were not in an actual tornado, but I tell you what, I went out the day before the event, like you, Spencer, was out there on the gravel and I, I looked up the weather afterwards because the experience that I had heading north out of town. And as you mentioned, while this ride was not on the literal other side of the tracks, it was on the other side of the river. So it, uh, the event was originally supposed to start on mass Avenue, which is kind of the main drag there in downtown Lawrence. Like a lot of people, my friends that I had traveled there with, we actually booked our Airbnb so that we could be proximate to the start of the event. So we were, I don't know, we're like two blocks from where the race was supposed to start. And then it turned out the event had been moved. The start finish kind of expo area. It's a cool, you know, it's a cool trail system. Um, But, you know, not the same as walking out the door from where you're staying and and getting on the starting line. This is just how life goes. You have to adjust and move forward. But the wind itself was about 23 miles an hour the day before the event when I went out and did a bit of pre-riding. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but after we rolled out of town in the quote unquote neutral start, which I'm sure we'll address, there's a point where you hit gravel, where the gravel starts, you're going downhill, where that sector started, there were a lot of potholes and things you might, uh, you might nail. And I had the sense we're going to be moving at quite a velocity in the actual race. But when I was out there alone, the crosswind, it was a direct, you know, west to east crosswind as we headed north. It was, and it's marbly over hard pack, but it was like quite loose gravel. And I just, I felt like my bike was going to get blown out from underneath me. And I'm, you know, I'm a larger human. I weigh probably 185-ish pounds. And I didn't have the sense that I was very stuck to the ground underneath me the day before out there riding. And I had this sense that that might play a factor in the actual event. Well, yeah. And I live in, I mean, I used to live in Lawrence, I guess. I didn't, I, I'm doubting that after how affected I was about the wind, but I know I live in Colorado. We get like hundred mile winds coming off the mountains. It's not like it's not windy here, but I just don't go outside when it's that windy or I lived on the North shore of Maui, like home of windsurfing, pretty windy. So I'm like, well, I'm used to wind. This won't be a problem. I was completely, I, I had just completely forgot. It's, it's hard to explain how demoralizing it is. Like it's both, it's a both hot and cold wind. Like you're, you're overheating and freezing at the same time. There's nothing around you. You kind of start to feel like you're going crazy because you're hearing noises whistling through your ears. So yeah, right off the bat on the pre-ride, I'm a little intimidated by the wind. And I think we both had concerns because it's, you start on the, the levee. It is a good trail system. It did feel a little bit like we were just as soon as I rolled up to the expo, it's like, is this like a local mountain bike race? You know, they have like the inflated start finish line banner thing. And you're like, it kind of feels like I'm I'm at like a local race that would be on these trails and then finish. Didn't really feel like a big time. It it felt a lot like a small road races I've been to countless times throughout my life, but it starts on pavement through town, not a close course, by the way, and then downhill into the gravel. And I think we both had concerns on that pre-ride, like, Ooh, we're going to be hitting this gravel. Like, over 30 miles an hour fighting for position with hundreds of people like this could go poorly a surface change um i I, so i was like off the bat like i don't know if i'm even going to be fighting at the front like this is going to be tough 
do you like so then we meet there in the morning and a, and a i was also caught off guard it was like pitch black at 7 a.m the event started at 7 30 right. they let us line yeah. up at seven i i could barely see like riding to the race on the levee i could barely see how to get to the race but we we make it there we line up i mean it is a fun i would say a fun festive atmosphere at the beginning i i would give and i'm coming in as a gravel skeptic like is this really that different than road racing but no, that was fun. But then, you know, once we were lining up, like, I think you were joking about having a shoot bottle. Like I did have a shoot bottle. Like, it's like, this is just cyclocross or like a mountain bike race or a long road race. Like I'm clam- cramming calories, clam- cramming drinks in the shoot where like you have sweats on, you're going to throw those over right when you start. And it is an intense start. Like, can you kind of talk through the, the gun goes off? We don't get call-ups shockingly. I can't believe that. Like Botas gets called up and we don't. But they roll out and like, what are your thoughts on this neutral? Let's, let's say like yeah. uh, lowercase in neutral rollout. Yeah. We've all been a part of this style of neutral start. Also just on the logistics side of things, the, uh, you know, there's like a 90 page, I mean, they call it the race Bible. So there's like a 90 page document telling you everything that's going on in the event. And of course, leading up to the event, like every gravel race, you have to make a lot of logistics decisions, which is part of what's fun, but also can be really anxiety provoking, really anxiety provoking. Right. And I think this is where having local knowledge of the course can be really valuable and having friends there. So one of the calculations that I was trying to make, Spencer and I were going back and forth about this the week of the race was the you know, are you carrying all of your nutrition and all of your fluid that you need for the entire race? Are you somehow going to figure out how to get somebody out there on the course to hand something up? And if you are going to have them hand something up, where are you going to have the people? There's just, there's an awful lot to figure out because even in the, you know, at the amateur level that Spencer and I are racing at, even though Spencer's a, a, a professional athlete, um, <laughs> You know, you, there's, there's, there's a lot to figure out here. And as you'll hear during our recounting of the race, this is a, you know, took me about, I think four hours and 53 minutes or 56 minutes. I think you were around 450 Spencer. Um, but that's a long period of time to be on a bike. So figuring out, okay, am I wearing a pack or not? Am I using bottles? And you also have to think about, are my bottles going to bounce out of my cages? How rough is the gravel? Why actually be able to reach down and drink? Why be able to do that in the first 20 minutes of the race? Because you have to start eating pretty much immediately when you're racing for five hours, as I'm sure many of you know. And then there's that question of, do you want to uh, just like carry an additional five or six pounds of, of fluid with you, given that your group may not stop? And if you do, they may take that as a moment to just like totally get rid of you. So having said all of that, the race Bible said that they were going to start gritting people or putting them in the chute at around 7 a.m. The way the ra- this race was set up, uh, you know, there, was, there were barriers on both sides for about 200 yards. And it was clear, okay, we've had about 600 people in the race. Everybody's going to be squeezed in there. Having pre-ridden, it was very clear where you lined up in that pen was going to have a very material impact on the rest of your entire race. And so, you know, so we were probably ready around 6:45. It was about 43 degrees. And then <laughs> so cold. It was it was quite it was cold. Miserable. It was quite cold. But here's a pro tip if you have any friends who run marathons or do cyclocross, you might be aware of this, but just go to a thrift store and pick up a really cheap sweatshirt or sweatpants or both. My friend, uh, Brian Andre's wife, Dana, picks them up for my crew. Shout out to Dana. So yeah, just like have some stuff on and then you can wear it until it's time to start. Then just take it off, throw it over the fence. We were able to get our stuff back later, but um, sometimes you won't be able to and they'll just donate it. So maybe leave that, uh, that Steo vest at home if you're someone who started working in tech in 2023 and got some <laughs> company swag. Um, Anyhow, so seven o'clock comes and goes. Dave Tal, Tally, I don't know how to say his last name. He's like, you know, you're amazing, Dave, if you're listening. I have a lot of respect for you. But he was doing his thing at around 7 a.m. 
And the one thing they're talking about Floyd Landis, Floyd Landis's birthday, Floyd was there on a tandem. The one piece of information we were not getting was, hey, when, when can we actually like go in and start lining up? So time keeps advancing. Finally around, I don't know, 725, they're like, go ahead and line up. So at that point, we've been standing around for 30 plus minutes. And I don't know about you, Spencer, but I was not warmed up at that point in time. And I had conspicuously chosen not to warm up because I wanted to make sure I was in a good spot. They also had told us they wanted the waffle riders first. We were in the wafer. No one paid any attention to that. So we probably could have gone up. I mean, it definitely wouldn't have been where I belong, but I, I could have gone up to like the second row probably behind the people who had been called up if I had just pushed my way up there or been there a bit earlier. So I think that kind of immediately set us back because we probably had 80 people to maneuver through while totally cold, not warmed up. And then the gun goes off. We leave the shoot. We go maybe and maybe like 80 yards on really rough grass. And then there's a Jeep parked in the middle of the road. <laughs> right, I forgot right. I was, about this. It was right yeah, in the middle of the road at the start. Right in yeah. the middle of the road where the pack was. If you watch Drew Dillman, shout out Drew, has got his recap of the waffle up. And so, yeah, there's just, there's just a Jeep sitting there. I think it was actually an official vehicle that maybe they were doing media stuff out of, but probably, you know, not the optimal place to have that vehicle, but you have to be adaptive. And then from there, it was like a cyclocross, like an elite cyclocross yeah. start is how I would describe the first, you know, 20 minutes of the race. So it starts immediately just like totally from being cold and standing around for 40 minutes to we were absolutely maxed out. Everyone's fighting to move up through this pack and this neutralized start. There is a double yellow line rule. We turned out of the parking lot the pack immediately takes over the entire, <laughs> the entire road. <laughs> people are like riding through people's yards to cut in, you know, I'm like, are we going to have a tour of Flanders incident here? And, you know, Spencer, I know you've, you've been in the pro criterium circuit for me, this was like a pretty intense experience having, you know, I've been riding with like a maximum of three people for most of the past three years. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. So it was uh it was definitely a spicy start and kind of as anticipated once we got up towards where the the gravel started I think we were probably going around 35 miles an hour entering the gravel would be my guess. Yeah, and I mean yeah, I've done crits that are crazy. Like I've done the Littleton crit what that everyone watched that everyone knows about because uh Jess Williams crashed someone out at. But that's a really intense crit because it's nighttime, you're going fast, kind of like Tulsa Tough. I'd say the big difference, though, is you know the course is closed. Like, this course was open. Right. We're just going through North Lawrence. None of the, these intersections are technically hot, I believe. I don't think those were blocked off. Yeah. You're going, like, 35 miles an hour through intersections at near darkness. It's like, man, like, this, this could go wrong pretty, bad, pretty fast. And there's a wide variety of, like, handling skills. I, I thought it was. and I, But I haven't raced a bike since 2019 since this so i i was rusty to say the least but i thought it was like up there with some of the sketchier races i've ever done and then yeah knowing that there and in colorado road racing there's this odd tradition of every race you do will have a gravel section like they've they've invented gravel they were doing doing this for 30 years so i'm familiar with that but oftentimes they tilt it up so that you go in on an uphill angle it's not as fast this was fast yeah i would say 33 35 miles an hour downhill and I kind of make the calculated decision. And you just went. Like we start, like Andrew's just up the road. Like you're you're riding the seam up there on the side that I was a, I was honestly afraid to take because I was like, I could just see like this pack moving and then like I'm like ejected into this church parking lot. But I made this pretty, I would say pretty big risk to kind of sit back and give myself cushion going into the gravel. And then I thought, okay, once we're on the gravel, I'll just step out into the wind and bridge whatever i need to bridge it was quite hard um in retrospect maybe i just would have bought for position like you did i think i had to do like 400 watts for five minutes to get from the group that the problem is you're at the back of like a hundred person group it's shattering so not only do you have to pass these people you then have to like keep catching groups that are shattering to get up to the lead and the lead then as i got up to the lead it started to break apart but 
you know, I, I kind of think things ended up where they should have like the league. I could not get the lead group that was going away because I was just catching them on the first big climb. But I was like struggling for the first two hours. Like you say, you're supposed to take in calories for the first 20 minutes. I don't think I touched my bottles for the first 20 minutes. I was just on the limit. I was really hurting for the first two and a half hours. Like I'm going to get dropped out of this group. I And you have no idea where you are. That's to me, that's the weirdest thing about it is like you're going so hard and you have absolutely no idea what the race situation is. Like I kind of assumed there was 30 people in our group up the road and it didn't matter. I was like, I'll just survive back here. Um, sh- we should say like you chose to go hydration pack. I went bottles, as many bottles as I could fit on my bike, three on my bike, two of them were liters, one in my pocket. We were pretty lucky that the temperature was like 50 mid to low fifties. I think that helped a lot for the hydration. If it was really hot, I honestly don't know what I would have done. Just bring the biggest camel back I could have found, but I definitely wasn't eating and drinking enough in the beginning. And just like, it was an 82 mile race technically, but I'm just looking at an old race file. So like it took me yeah, four hours, 50 minutes, but you know, I did like a 102 mile race back in 2016, did it in four hours. So like, it doesn't sound that long, but five hours is a long time to be racing. The longest race I've ever done by, by nearly an hour. So you know, I was kind of intimidated by the distance, but I found these, and I, you, you might think this is like not worth the money, but it was uh, like, do you know this, the company Mar- Morton, Martin, I don't know how to yeah. pronounce it. Yeah. I found these gel or these drink mixes like the week before the race, 320 calories a bottle with, I think it's 90 grams of carbs per bottle. So I just picked some of these up at the Rafa store in Boulder that totally saved my life because I had those in three of my bottles. So I'm taking, you know, almost a thousand calories just in fluid during the race. Cause I don't know about you. I found it very hard. I mean, it was hard to drink. I, I was not taking a gel for the first 90 minutes of the race. Like it was hard to take your hands off the bars. Yeah, there's no way that I would have been eating any physical food. It's kind of funny to think back now on the era of real food and cycling training and competition. I and it's actually making me think of a gravel and I don't know if I would call it a gravel race, but it was billed as a gravel race called the Taint Hammer, which was in Central California in I think it was in 2015. That was, I think it was 140 miles. And uh, that's when I was in like a really big rice cake phase. I was like deep in the scratch cookbook. And I remember, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it happened to me in this race and it had happened enough times that this was the last time rice cakes were part of my, my race nutrition. I ended up aspirating the rice from a rice cake while, you know, I was like trying to inhale a rice cake while riding in like zone five in the first 45 minutes of that race. And I ended up aspirating the the rice. I had like grains of rice stuck in my nasal cavity that I, <laughs> I couldn't get out. It was terrible. And I was like, I'm, this is not the correct thing to be eating in an event like this. But yeah, like you, I was rocking probably 110 grams of carb per hour. I can tell you how to make your own mix off air. It's not that complex. You just do one-to-one maltodextrin to fructose. You put a little bit of dehydrated fruit in there to make it taste palatable and put some pink sea salt in there and like, you're good to go. But yeah, it was extremely difficult to eat. And the moment at which Spencer and I got separated was about 12 minutes into the race when we were on that first gravel stretch going north out of town. And the day before when I rode that, my thought was the race is going to shatter here. I thought there probably would be a big crash, which there was not. Thank thank God. And because the wind was blowing so strong from uh, west to east there, I was like, we're going to end up far right in the gutter or whatever the equivalent of the gutter is on a gravel road. It's going to be strung out and it's going to be impossible to pass. That is exactly what happened. At about 12 minutes, um, I went into AFib. So uh, I've had some some, uh, issues with AFib in the past, but not for a while. And so I could tell, okay, I have an irregular heartbeat. I had to ease off. That's when I started to let a gap open and Spencer just flew around me, bridged up to the next group. And then I just tried to hold on to whatever I could, but there was nowhere to get out of the wind at that point. So we were far right, 
no one had wind protection. And even being on a wheel at that point, when you're in a strong crosswind like that, unless an actual echelon forms, it's just the same as, as like riding into a headwind. It's terrible. Yeah. And then we turned into the wind, which is yeah, brutal. Exactly. You know? Oh my yeah. God. That was, it was miserable. Yeah. 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 It was pretty hard. And that's, I don't know what was going on in your group, but for me, the first hour of the race was really, I just tried to calm down to get my heartbeat back into a regular rhythm. And I, uh, I eventually was able to do that after probably 15 minutes. And then I did think about stopping cause you know, we can talk about AFib another time, but, uh, yeah, I, I decided to stay in the race. And I was like, I'm just going to see how I feel. And at that point I then was like, okay, what can I do to bridge up to the next group, the next group, the next group. And you do have very varied levels of ability and levels of comfort riding in a group, I would say out there on the road. Yeah. I don't know what it was like in your group. Um, but, uh, in the group that I ended up in, we had probably four extremely strong riders in a group of probably 15. And those four riders were real eager to just like sit in the wind and pull. So I just was like, great, I'm just going to sit back here. Go ahead. And I, yeah, so I, I did have like an idea at one point. I was like, I'm going to bridge up to the lead group. Like I'm doing this, oh, wow. but then, you know, I was like, okay. yeah, maybe, maybe just sit back for a minute, see what happens. So, you yeah. know, I was trying to sit at the back as much as possible, but I was, I was shocked at how, like, as I said, five hour race, pretty long, you know, you're getting up there towards like a classic or even like a monument distance, you know, maybe not numerically, but time-wise, which is what's important. and people were attacking every corner, like every corner we would go out of 600 Watts, just like just yeah. to hold the wheels. People were just like, it was like a crit. And then every, I hesitate to call them climbs, but they're just kind of like endless rollers. You know, I think in the first two hours I climbed like 2,500 feet, which is a lot for without yeah. a sustained climb. Every time we hit a roller, boom, people sprinting up it, Cars were coming by, they would kind of come by and then slow down to like 30 miles an hour. So people would jump on them to try to draft them. I was oh, like, this wow. Is Interesting. Madness. Like, okay. what are you doing? And it's like, okay, let's say they pull you away. You're now what, 20 miles into a 123 mile race? Because I was racing with the waffle, and you don't know who you're yeah. racing with. That is part right. of the chaos. Like, yeah, they could be totally. a waffler, they could be a wafer, they could be the thin mint, as you called it, the short one. And I was like, I don't know. So you're going to get a 20 foot gap and hold that for a hundred miles. Does that really make sense? But the net positive was we were flying, like we were cruising through the, the first few hours with that full walk. Cause I, I guess maybe the waffle people just wanted to f catch the leaders, but I, you right. know, I read some race reports. It sounded like that was not a cohesive group that it was just like endless attacking over and over right. again. They pull off. It was smaller, like maybe six people. You know, we definitely slowed down quite a bit. And then one guy just started attacking, attacking, attacking. I just followed him one time. There was three of us left or four of us left. And then we kind of pulled. We caught Botas at a, at a very active train line, which we, you know, the day before on the pre-ride, I was like, there's definitely going to be a train here. Just ride yeah. as hard as you can to the train line and you'll catch someone. And we caught him there. And, you know, my thought was like, if, and I rode with both, I, him and Tiffany Cromwell's partner like dropped our group immediately. And then I bridged up to them and like Cromwell was pulling so hard that I was having a hard time pulling through and she was definitely the strongest of the three of us. I'm like, if these guys got dropped by the leaders, like there's no way I would have stayed in the group. So it all kind of right. worked out for the best. Right. But there was actually, did you notice there was like an active feed zone? We were debating because you're left with a lot of unknowns. You're like, how many bottles? So, yeah. you know, if, if four bottles, will that be enough? And it's not clear, like we were asking at some point, like, have we passed any aid zones? Like, right. w where were these feed zones? And then with like 65 miles into the race, there was like a Waldorf school. And I think the kids that go to the Waldorf school were holding out um, water bottles. So you could have grabbed them there, but that was like the only staffed feed zone that I noticed the whole time. Yeah. So there, there were three feed zones in our event. I think one was around, it was like 23 miles, 46 miles. And then there was the one at 65 miles, which you're describing. And, uh, some of the interesting things, and there's something that happened at that feed zone in my race that I wanted to talk about, which I'll get to in a second. But as you mentioned, it was just endless rollers all day. I'm 
yes, relative to someone who lives in an actual mountainous area, these were not long sustained climbs. But again, more like a cyclocross type effort. Some of these climbs were, I don't know, two to five minutes and definitely like VO2 max power up every climb. Um, I did not feel good. So I was just trying to hang on in my group and it started to thin out. For me, around about halfway into the race, around mile 40, I also started to cramp. So my legs started to fully seize every time we would hit one of those climbs. So I just went into the mindset of, I'm just going to, whatever, I'm staring at the wheel in front of me. I'm going to make it to the top of this hill and whatever, then we'll see what happens and ended up working out. I was able to stay with that group, but that was just what was going on for me the entire day. And then afterwards, when I was talking to the people in the group that I was in, each person had (laughs) some version of that where they were like, yeah, I don't know. I was just trying to hang on because the pace was so hard over the top of every climb. We actually had a guy uh, gosh, he was from Bermuda in our, in our group. And he was just like absolutely ripping up and over the top of every climb, particularly in like the last 15 miles when there were some really big rollers. I talked to him afterwards and he said, yeah, I just like, I didn't have an easy enough gear. So I just had to stand (laughs) up to try to get this thing over the top of the hill. Or I like, I just would have totally blown up. And then he ended up having his back season, uh, dropping when we were on the flats. The other thing that really jumped out at me was, and again, if you've raced gravel, like you've experienced this, but generally if you're in the very front, the one of the reasons that it's beneficial to be in the front and pulling is you can actually see what you're riding into. Yeah, and when, you, yeah. when you're sitting like even one wheel back, you have no idea what you're about to hit. And I, I would say we had probably 40 plus climbs on the day and the downhills on some of these, we're going 40 plus miles an hour easily. Sometimes the gravel was super loose. You didn't know what was there. You didn't know if you're going to ride into a pothole. And, you know, that's just kind of the nature of these events. And also, if you deviate from your line, if you get off more or less where cars have been driving or a lot of bikes have passed, then you're in something loose and, you know, you could have a bad day. And I actually saw that happen in my group. At one point, we went into. I don't know. We crested a hill. We were riding full gas. And then there was a sharp 90 degree right. And it got very steep. And there also was a ditch right there. So I caught it and slowed down. And it was uh it felt like the the scene on indoor when the stormtroopers are riding on like those those air bike speeder things yeah, and they yeah. keep like flying into trees. So I have people just like flying off the road in front of me into this ditch. And then as I'm breaking, I can hear people behind me crashing. And, uh, you know, that split that group again. I stayed with the, the front group, but a lot of stuff like that was happening. And I also had not been out in a group in a strong tailwind in a while. And again, this is one of those things where if you're a fan of cycling, you know, you should get out and do a bike race and you should do one of these races just so you can understand the level of difficulty and kind of the nuance of what's happening in a group. I just think as a fan, it's a really valuable thing to do. Cause you might think when you see a breakaway group in a world tour race, because it's just on television, like, well, whatever, they're just like taking polls. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you're out there in the wind, you're riding all day long. And if you're not reading the directions, the, the changes in the direction of the wind correctly, if you're not getting, you know, into an echelon when you need to, whatever, you're toast. And something that really struck me when we had a couple, couple of directional changes, when we started heading due east, because this the route had a couple of squares where we just like would ride a square, we would come back the yeah. way we came. It was like mm-hmm. Blair Witch Project type stuff. But when you would start going due east with the wind at your back, I don't know if you experienced this, but damn, it is hard to stay on when you're going full gas, totally spun out, with a tailwind, maybe slightly downhill. That is not an easy thing to do. And I've kind of had forgotten about that, honestly. Yeah, it's funny because when you're riding just recreationally, especially by yourself, you're like, tailwind, sign me up. Great. It's like, if you're racing, that's your worst enemy. Like I remember signing in for a race in like 2014 and the poor lady behind the desk was like, gonna be a big tailwind today. And I was like, that doesn't make it easier. That just makes it harder. And it's like, I still in my mind, like, I remember just trying to hold this guy's wheel because it is brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And if you get 
even a few feet off of it, you're done. Yeah. And I think it is hard to appreciate that. The course was a little odd. Like I, I'm from the area, I guess I've ridden. I don't ride north of Lawrence that much because the roads kind of freak me out. Um, I could not have told you where we were at a single point on the course. Like I found it so disorienting and we did like just a series of kind of like connected blocks over and over and over again, and then came back. Like I actually found it quite demoralizing. It's just like the same scenery, but you're not quite sure if you've seen it before or not, or where you are or what part of the course is left. I, I did buy like a new Garmin recently. I think it's I just saw whichever the one Yumbo Visma was using and I thought if it's good enough for wow, it's good enough for me, but it showed you like what climbs were coming up and you have the map. Absolutely was like clutch. That was massive because the last 20 miles were totally flat. So just knowing that that was there became really important for me. And I was even just thinking like, man, if I can just get to the river trails, like I know, like I actually found it quite technically taxing, way more taxing than I remember. But I was like, I, I will be able to finish on the river trails because they are right. flat. Um, but actually, Botas, when he attacked, I was, I was telling the group, like, guys, I'm blown. I'm just going to sit back here. You can just drop me on the river trails. Don't even worry about it. And then I bridge away from them. And then they're having to chase me through the river trails. But <laughs> did you also find that there was like random people on the trails? There was like the slowest lady in the world mountain biking in front of me. <laughs> in the race i was like what is going on right now why yeah. why are there just general use people out here i i mean it, it kind of was a lot of that throughout the day too where i as i said open roads and you were talking about wanting to see on the descent i was just like letting five or six bike links go and going down the descents last my thinking was because we were constantly descending on the wrong side of the road and i was like if a car comes the other way at least i'll be the last one it hits and maybe i can get out of the way and we did have a few close calls. Like you could, didn't, weren't you at a race where someone like tragically died because they uh, hit a car going the other way on the course? Uh, I'm not sure there's a way to die in a, a bike race other than tragically. Uh, but yeah, at Rasputitsa earlier in the year, there was a head-on collision between a rider and someone, in, I believe in a Dodge 1500 Ram specifically. I'm so it doesn't happen yeah. all the time. It's, yeah. I found no, it to be I, very sketchy. Yeah, and I it sounds like this happened in your group as well. In my group, we were when we were coming back, so there was like maybe 10 miles of flat before we got to the river trail, maybe a bit less, but again, kind of like part of the Blair Witch project aspect of this race was <laughs> I don't know. If you go look at our activities on Strava or you can go look at the route on the BWR site, but you you left town I'll put them in the description. Yeah. And I'll then like there were, there were a couple of these squares and then you more or less came back the way you came and then it split off into this flat area. But when we were coming back, I, uh, I don't know if you had this experience, Spencer, but I kept having the like, okay, I think I rem I'm visually oriented. This has to be the last climb. And then there would be like another one and another one and another one. Yeah. And when we were actually getting close to the end, the final really high speed descent, which is probably 40 plus miles an hour, extremely loose gravel. And if you're a gravel, you're, it's the kind of thing where they've just dumped fresh gravel on the road fairly recently, I would say. And so there's not like a great line, whatever you're hitting, you're just kind of all over the place. Well, this is the moment when somebody in, uh, like a, a Kia Telluride or whatever that vehicle is called, like decides to pull out like right in front of our group. And two guys in the group use this as the chance. I, I don't think that this is safe and I don't think it's a, a good thing to do. So if you're listening, don't do this. But what they did is they decided, because they had the best line of sight, to go around the car, which granted was kicking up a giant dust cloud what we were, that we were riding into on this descent where we couldn't see anything uh, on loose gravel. They went around, so they put the car between themselves and the rest of the group. We were stuck because the car is going at a lower rate of speed. And then like they created a gap and separated the group. And when we hit the flat, we had to chase again. But I would say putting a car that's on an open course between you and your competitors on purpose, while perhaps tactically intelligent is not cool don't do that um and not in unlike, the spirit of gravel probably not not really in the spirit of gravel uh and i uh i discovered because i have not had i've I haven't done a lot of events in the past couple of years 
But this year when I've done a few events, I'm like, man, something like what's going on with my garment? Cause I had just the line, like it shows me the line where I'm going, but I wasn't getting any of the turn by turn. And it always gives me this weird error message, which, uh, my buddies that uh, I was staying with for this race gave me a very hard time about this. Subsequently, when I got home just today, I discovered that my Garmin which I, I think I purchased off of Amazon last year, apparently is loaded with European base maps. So I don't have maps for North America. <laughs> so that's why I'm like, oh, okay, this makes so much sense. And also because of Garmin's products can be a bit complex to use in my opinion. I had no idea the wrong base map was in there until I dug super deep and spent a lot of time online with uh, Garmin support. So ultimately I had to like wipe my Garmin and reload an American base map on it. So unlike you, I had no idea what the, you know, I didn't know where we were turning. I didn't know what climbs were coming and I didn't know why I was like, what's going on. I reloaded the course probably three times the night before. And I just kept feeling like I had a bad or corrupted file, but that wasn't the case. And now when we were coming, go ahead. I was going to say is it was super important because at like the level of racing I did on the road, I mean, maybe once in my life that I ever do a 90 mile loop that was unique. You're doing like the same 20 or 30 mile loop over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. So it, it is a, I actually, as you said, like if you like watching bike racing, doing an event like this can be helpful because you kind of realize like, you're like, how could they make that mistake? It's like, they might not know the course. Like, they might be as lost as we were um, right. as far as course details a lot of times in these World Tour races. Also, perhaps explains why Remco's on his computer all the time, honestly. Yeah, he I doesn't think, know where the hell he's honestly, going. Honestly, yeah. no, I think that they're probably looking at what's the climb that's coming up, how steep is it at what point, and where are the turns if they're yep. about to hit a downhill. So that makes... That makes a bit more sense. Now, when we got into that flax section where you mentioned there was the Waldorf school with the active feed zone. So when you, as you approach it, they had people actually holding out bottles. And again, it's your personal responsibility to figure out how are you going to fuel or whatever. I will say that in my group, I tried to call a truce a couple of times to have a nature break. There was someone trying to do this in our group. And no one, no one would do it. And I think they were just like, great, we can drop this guy. Yeah. But what they didn't know is... I can hold it. I just held it the entire race. And I dropped, I dropped, you know, 90% of that group later. I was, so they might, they may have seen it as a sign of weakness, but this was kind of my reverse ploy to make them think that, that, uh, I wasn't going to be able to make it to the end. Um, when we went through that active feed zone, they had people on both sides, they were holding up bottles, which again, it's like, okay, wild. You can get a bottle. I think some of them actually had nutrition in them. So I had a guy in my group. I'd love to get your take on this, Spencer. I had a guy in my group who had headphones in the entire day, was like what I call pinoing. So like Tebow Pino, like pulling faces just out of the saddle, like all over his bike and doing a lot of those moves where, you know, you have to protect your front wheel. And you know what? If you're in a group with people for four hours, like maybe don't be an asshole and think a little bit about <laughs> where's my wheel going when I'm like doing a Tebow Pino in whatever context. This guy was just kind of a bit all over the place, especially when we were echeloning and um, had headphones in. So he couldn't hear anyone. I tried to talk to him at one point. He like hit the pause button and like takes his earbud out and is like, what? Like, man, I, I'm not sure that that's the safest or best thing to do on an open course. And when we roll into the feed zone, he starts screaming at the people working at the the rest stop. Like he's a world tour rider. And these are his swannies on the side of the road, just like going bananas about how he needs water, botches the hand up, starts cursing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and all I'm thinking is great. We're going to drop you now. We're, you're going to be get totally smoked. You're going to cramp out. I carried 10 pounds of water for five hours. This is why I did it. <laughs> and then two minutes later, a giant Dodge Ram comes flying up the side of the road, like 50 miles an hour, gets ahead of us, pulls over and a guy jumps out with a bottle just for this, this, oh uh, this guy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess that's, that's nice of them to do that. And I mean, it blew it. Like this guy was going to cramp out and he did end up, uh, finishing a place in front of me because I wrecked really hard in the river trail trying to stay hydrated because I was cramping so hard. I, yeah. So let's talk about the river trail for a second. We come into the okay. finish. I'm, I'm feeling 
on the levee, I'm thinking, you know what? I could be done with this race. We're at like 73 miles. I'm good, guys. I'm in. And, and, you know, as I said, I have no idea what place I'm in. Little did I know I was in second place at times when I was pulling on the front of that group. Um, and it's funny, you, <laughs> your group was like, there was so much attacking in my group. Like one guy just kept attacking us. And I'm thinking it's maybe it's my roadie mentality. I'm like, guys, the winning move, move is up the road. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, let yeah. it go. But, you know, gravel's different, different beast. You got it. You got to keep attacking all the time. And I, I also did find people to be all over the road. Like I was a little shocked by that. Yeah. Just as like, so in gravel, there's no rules. You just go wherever you want to go, whenever, whenever you want to do it. Doesn't matter. Screw, screw everyone behind you. So yeah, I was dodging a lot of people with headphones in um, as yeah. well. We get within maybe 100 meters of the finish line and you can see the freaking banner. And you're like, okay, we're done. We're done. No, you take a left into a nine-mile uh, series of mountain bike trails that have random people and very loose sand. Yeah, you, know, you could argue that it adds like a technical element, and you know it splits up a front group if they're in it, so you don't get a sprint finish. But I'm a little. It felt a little gimmicky to me, and I've seen this complaint levied at especially like California gravel races, where you know it could be mixed surface with some road, and they'll like find a way to mix in a rock garden, and you're like, that rock garden need to be there, like, but. You know, maybe that's adding adding a layer to the course that wouldn't have been there before. But I found the the mountain bike trails to be a little bit more trouble than they were. I I it's still unclear to me completely what that added to the race. Like when you're suffering in a like a weird you know weird vibe back in the middle of nowhere scrub forest and a sandy mountain bike trail, and you're thinking like, is this really where I want to be right now? Like, how, how did you fight? Were you like? Did you think that was cool? Did you think they just could have cut that out? Yeah, I mean, I will say, I don't think we really said this at this point in the podcast, but I just where I netted out after this experience was I want to go do one of these events again. And for me, it actually provided everything that, that I hoped I would get out of it, just from the point of view of getting to spend time with my friends like you and my other friends who were there, uh, Eric Matthews, Brian Andre, Dr. Scott Fry, all awesome people. It was just really fun to have everybody get together to do this horrible thing together. And it was, <laughs> it was truly, it was just like truly fucking horrible. It was you know truly what I mean? horrible. Yes. It was truly yeah. horrible. It was really, really hard. I've done a lot of bike racing. I've done a lot of gravel racing. I've done the Unbound 100 a couple of times. There was just something uniquely horrible about this. And it had something to do with the so many directional changes in the wind, the severity of some of the climbs, which we've talked about, but some of those, man, I don't know if your computer was telling you, but they had to be like greater than 12% at some points. Some of the pitches were extremely steep. I don't know what you were seeing on your Garmin, but my feeling was the tops of some of these climbs were probably greater than 12%. Am I right? Did you see something I, like that? I would say, yeah, that's, that's probably correct. Yeah. So you had that, you had the constant directional changes in the wind. And even when it ostensibly, it should have been easy, like with the tailwind, it was just extra horrible. And then finishing the day with the single track, which I would agree with you, what kind of like, what is the point of this? Because once you got to that point, extremely difficult to pass in that single track, although there did end up being a few exchanges in the group that I was in for me, primarily due to the fact that I took my hand off the bars to drink from my hydration pack on a section I thought would be smooth, hooked a root, went over the bars and, uh, had, had quite a severe crash, but got back up. And then of course there were the Zorlac, um, sand pits, which that was extra demoralizing. I don't know what the experience was like for you, but I'm talking like Coke side level sand, just like, the first little bits of sand, I was like, this is great. I've done a lot of cyclocross. I can ride these. But as it went on, there was just more and more. And then there were a few probably 100-yard sections of sand at like the absolute worst moments when you just wanted the race to be over. And that uh, I ended up getting passed by someone there who was able to ride, you know, so good for them. Um, the other thing I wanted to note, and I think – you uh you experienced this perhaps in your group, although it may have been the reverse of what I'm about to describe, but the group that I was in had someone who placed quite high in the women's race, and her husband was in the group, and there was there appeared to be a lot of the you know uh 
husband wife team riding together, which is something that happens in gravel all the time. But from a sporting point of view, I mean, I guess it's within within the rule set. Um, but there has been a lot of controversy and, and gravel around that when someone from the men's race is pacing or aiding someone who's in the women's race. So, you know, but overall, I would say brutally hard race. I felt like, uh, I used to know this guy who had no, uh, he, he had a, a tricep issue is his triceps completely atrophied. That's what I felt like once I got into that final mountain bike section, I just really wanted the race to be over. And it just kept going on and on and on riding 10 miles on single track, even relatively tame single track. It's a lot of single track to ride. Yeah. in the Sarlacc pit, the frustrating thing about that, it, it was truly just sand. Um, you could like easily cut that out. You're like, I was just saying out loud. I was like, who, who the fuck designed this course <laughs> when I was running through what seemed to be endless pits of sand. And then you like look down at the river driest I've ever seen Lawrence, by the way. And it's just like sandbar, endless sandbars in the river. I was like, this is sand hell. What is going on? Um, you know, you kind of get back up to speed as you as you get towards the finish. I was letting people buy me. Little did I know I was letting a podium place go away. But if you wanted to be a big jerk, you probably could just have oh, blocked, yeah. gone as slow as you needed to and block people the whole time. Yeah. Um, I would love to see one, someone do that. Yeah, I just didn't think it totally added to the race. Um, but as you said, and it was horrible, so horrible, probably part of that had to do with like, there was no direct sunlight the entire day. You're just like, you're miserable. Yeah. The weather's miserable. The wind is miserable. Just a beautiful, miserable pit. And, and I was honestly shocked at how, um, the dust, like it just got everywhere. You know, I, and I ride a lot of oh, gravel. Yeah. I probably ride gravel five times a week. I've never experienced this type of like, I guess it's like, they call it cho- like limestone chalk rock. And it really kicks up and like sticks to everything. So you're like breathing it in. It was miserable. Well, they've treated that with nanoparticles in the area around Boulder. So it doesn't actually stick. (laughs) So I was like, after the race, like this sucks, obviously never doing this. And then I was like, BWR Arizona, that could be interesting. So I'm, I'm definitely now like BWR curious. They does seem to be, you know, there, there was a lot of like, you know, maybe some amateurness and corner cutting around the event. Part of that might be because their title sponsor and like local organizer dropped out at the last second. But it it actually made me think like there are there are local gravel races here, and it's like that actually seems quite unappealing. The drop off between like a BWR level event and your local gravel race is probably quite steep. So it is kind of expensive, and they are all, are only in a few select locations. But I probably would recommend them to people. What, what do you think? Would you do that as well? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I had the same thought. I was having the kind of F this, I'm never doing this again feeling as I was finishing the event. And then, yeah, a few hours later, I was like, you know what? This was, it was really fun. Like It was fun to see Spencer get together with my other buddies. And I think this would be a fun thing to bring my friends together to do in the future. I will say. I think, man, just like having the time to prepare to do something that takes, if you want to actually race and you want to prepare to do a five hour race, just the time cost is very, very large. And I think part of what I saw out there is the demographic for these events skews really old. I mean, I would say the average participant had to be over the age of 45 and probably 50 is probably the median. I could be wrong. You just don't see a lot of young people. and yeah, just having the time to prepare for something that long, you know, if you have family, other responsibilities, it's a lot, but I want to do it again. I guess what I'm saying is I would like to see something that's about three hours. Yeah. I think, you know, I don't think the amount of time you spend doing something determines how difficult it is. Cause I think, you know, if you were going to, I don't know, like a hundred meter sprint could be incredibly challenging. It's going to be over in a short period of time, but if you want to do well at it, you're going to spend, you know, maybe a lifetime preparing to do that. I think something more in the the three hour range would be awesome. And like, that's, I'd like to see something about that long. I know BWR doesn't do that and they're not going to, which is fine, but those are the kind of events I yeah, uh, I think that I'm personally really curious in, and I'll probably do a few more of these 
four to five hour events. I honestly, I kind of question how healthy it might be to do a lot of those over a long period of time for your heart health, but uh, certainly fun and you know better than a lot of other things you could be doing. I'm going to do them just so I keep, uh, this is the only way I'm going to get in shape. I'll just keep doing gravel, five hour gravel <laughs> races and eventually I'll be in shape. Yeah. And this is like definitely the biggest, the hardest ride I'll do all year. I did think it was probably the hardest race I've ever done. I mean, speaking to the not good for your health, it's incredibly physically taxing and we didn't even do the long event. That's, that's what blows my mind. Like who yeah. is the time to train for those? That must've been seven, eight hours for like the non pros. Like that sounds brutal. And yeah, like a three hour, that would be nice. I, I was surprised at like how beat up my body was. Um, I got, I think we finished, I finished like right. 12, 20 PM. My checkout at my hotel was at one. So I had to ride back, shower, get a metric ton of oh, uh, nice. chalk dust off me and pack my bike and then be back up in the lobby by, by 1 PM. So that was an interesting experience, but wow. um, got it done. Bike didn't break. So that's positive. Um, what in let's just talk about like our technical setups for a second. So if people are like curious mm. about how you, and I did think yeah. maybe this was a little bit longer, a, the course kind of grew every week. It was like a 70 mile event. Then it was like 77 and then it was yeah. 82. Right. Um, also it's just right. so much on gravel that you are going slow. You're losing like so much momentum. I like, if you look at a lot of the BWR yeah. events, they'll be like, I think Arizona's 50% road. So you're going to roll a lot faster on that road yeah. than you would the gravel. But what what, it, what bike did you run? What tires did you run? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, also when this event was original, originally 70 miles, I think it, that would have been about a four-hour event because yeah. we definitely spent at least an hour in the single track. The single track had a speed limit. And then once you got into the sand pits, I mean, that was at least an hour, I would estimate. Maybe a, a bit slightly less than that, but you just couldn't go that fast. There was a speed limit. Um, my bike setup, if anyone's listening to this and you work at a bike company and you would like to see me on your bicycle, uh, racing on it in 2024, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at hardway pod on social media. Instagram's a good place to reach me. DM me. Um, I was on a 2015 giant TCX, which is an awesome bike for cyclocross racing. I think it's among the best cyclocross racing platforms made. Even that vintage, I think, would still be competitive out there today. Uh, and I had, yeah, DI2, probably circa the same era. And I was running 42 millimeter specialized Pathfinder Pros. The Pro Edition has greater flat resistance than the S-Works version, which I think has a higher thread count. So it's generally preferable for gravel racing was used pretty widely, even off-brand, um, not sponsored correct at gravel world championships by a lot of riders. I felt pretty good about my tire selection. This is a conversation for a different time and place. I like, I really wonder, do you get anything out of side knobs on gravel? Like, do they actually do anything? Cause my feeling is they don't, uh, Cornering on gravel is is like a fairly uncontrolled. Yeah, it's an uncontrolled um, slide event. It's like it's very, yeah. Like I was watching Drew Dillman's video. I was like, oh, maybe the pros are. I don't know. Maybe they have better weight distribution or handling. And I was watching them go through the turns in his video. And I tell you what, it kind of looked like the same thing. Just try to keep your bike as vertical as possible. If you lean, you might wipe out, and you're gonna just kind of slide all over the place if you're going fast. Uh, we didn't talk about this. So I'll get back to my setup in a second, but. Also, if you're in the habit of, you know, going wide to, um, into the apex of the turn and then exiting wide again, it's not generally a good strategy I discovered on this course. Cause when you get into the apex of the turn, there are actually a lot of braking bumps there. So I had a couple of, of, uh, not awesome experiences using what typically is an excellent cornering strategy. You probably just want to like stay wide and stay where you can visibly see that the gravel is very smooth. As far as my setup, the vintage of bike I'm running, it being a CX bike means that it has steep angles and a high bottom bracket. And that's exactly what you don't want in an environment like this. So I think I would really benefit from and feel much more comfortable on something with a slightly longer wheelbase and lower bottom bracket. And like looking at the Canyon Grail that was released this week, I've been checking it out. That's exactly the direction it's gone. More like the Lauf gravel bike, the Giant Defy, others that 
slightly more stretched out, slightly more relaxed head angle, lower bottom bracket. So you have a lower center of gravity and stay stuck to the road a bit more. But you know what? Like you got to run what you brung. And the upside of my setup is like, it's an extremely light bike, which is nice. Yeah, it looked slick. Because I was carrying it a lot of weight. looked fast. You were probably, yeah. I bet your bike was, yeah. I bet your bike setup was five pounds lighter than mine. Um, I was kind of running the opposite, the Canyon Grizzle, which I, which I paid for. They didn't, they don't sponsor me. But I, I really like that bike. It's very comfortable. Would recommend it. Probably the best value for the money out there. It's not overly fast. I think the Canyon Grail would be, uh, if you really want to go fast, that's the option. Um, I just went slow. The theme of my day was slow everything. You know, slow, heavy bike. I was on 45 millimeter tires. Then I set up tubeless on Wednesday before I uh, flew out on Thursday. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had tubes in there and I was like, God. I don't really don't want to do this. Maybe I'll just run tubes. Like, I, I, what am I going to flat oh on the, the gravel? I don't think so. Um, no, I told I absolutely would have flatted. Actually, when I finished, there was a sealant all over my bike, so I'm sure I flatted at some point, and my sealant just oh nice just uh, just fixed that. So that was key. But yeah, being in your garage, like packing your bike as you're making the wheels tubeless, like not I would not say setting yourself up for success. I. Uh, I got really lucky with that. Um, I do find at lower pressures, like on the road with road bikes, it's very hard to set them up by yourself. It's much easier the lower pressure you get. But I did 45 millimeter challenge. What is it? It's no, no, the Schwabel all road, something, something, something. The basically yeah. like the simplest ones. There's just little knobs on them. As you say, I think the side knobs, the more I think about it, I think it's for like, uh, if you're on single track and it's, you know, it's that perfect dirt, maybe you can get up onto the sidewall and you're using those knobs. I but I don't know. I feel like you're, I feel like you're wrecking if you're, <laughs> if you're that far over. I mean, if you're on, on gravel, you're absolutely wrecking yeah. if you're on your sidewall. Like, yeah, I was just keeping it as, as straight up as possible. You know, the 45s were pretty big. I probably had too much pressure in them. I was just like, how, how hard can I get these without sliding out on this gravel? I definitely paid for that in the single track. The moment we hit, um, I was on Botas's wheel, Valtteri Botas, the F1 driver. I was on his wheel when we hit like the dirt or the grass and he like dropped me immediately. But going into that, I was like, oh, wow. you know, I caught you on the, okay. at the rail, at the railway crossing, just not fair to beat you. So like, I'll just sit back and I'll just take it easy on this single track. But it's like the man mm -hmm. dropped me the moment we left the gravel, um, probably partly because my, uh, wheels or tires were overinflated, but I probably could have let some some air out. But I was surprised that I probably had the biggest tires out there. I saw at least tied for the biggest tires I saw all yeah. day. A lot of people in my group seemed to have like thirty eights, which you know maybe was working for them. But on those descents, I, I don't was know. Happy I don't, man. I yeah, I don't feel like a thirty eight would have been the right tire out there. I I mean a forty I think would have been probably the sweet spot. Forty two was maybe a bit much. But yeah, I think a forty would have been good. We were riding quite fast and it was rough, but not that rough. I I was having this debate with some of the other people I was there with about what category of gravel is this? Cause I use the Silka tire pressure calculator. I don't know if you've given it a try, Spencer, but it generally has spot on recommendations based on your rider and equipment, total Whoa. weight, the width of your tires, all that stuff. Um, but you know, it asks you to specify what, like what category of gravel rotary. I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we guessed we were on about a, a cat, uh, like a 2.5 was, was our guess for the quality of the roads out there. I definitely have been on, rougher roads i mean here in mid-coast maine where i do a lot of really excellent gravel events i would say we're basically on um you know you should be riding a full suspension <laughs> yeah, mountain bike a lot, bike of on a lot of the gravel it's somehow <laughs> yeah. rougher than uh yeah mountain bike trail yeah for sure so i was like oh this is you know this is relatively uh relatively chill just the parts where it got complex were when it's that feeling of I'm riding on a bag of marbles that have been dumped on a concrete floor. And I'm going 40. And 
Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, well going forty. That's that's not an awesome feeling. That's where I maybe somebody feels good at that. Like, how did you feel when you were in those sections? Well, I think the forty fives helped a lot, you know, because I was plowing yeah. through okay. a lot of the marble. There was points where okay. there were points where yeah. I was like, I mean, I almost crashed it. Like I I was just like not really paying attention going around a corner, got in a loose bit. I really had to like pull my wheel out of out of a free fall my front wheel. So I easily could have gone down there. That would have not been fun. I I was pretty much anything that happens now is gravy. The fact that I didn't crash or get a flat was, was my goal for the race. It's, it was accomplished. So yeah. And as you say, like going through the eight, you really can't go through the apex of the the corners because it's so loose. If you get out of where a car has been going, that that's when it gets complex. Um, I thought the gravel was a lot smoother in the race than reconning, which shows you how yeah. mental it is. Like if you're just in a group and you are going faster and the faster you go, you kind of skip over a lot of stuff and it makes it slightly smoother. So it, yeah. it's still though, I mean, I don't know if I would have taken any smaller tires if you let me do it again. It was nicer, nice to have like the extra cushion, even if I'm going slower. Um, and yeah. I was trying to think of one other thing I was going to say. I mean, I, when we hit road, I was just like, I never want to go back to gravel. Keep me on this road forever. Like, Why, why yeah, is this road a only 100 feeling. meters? Please let it be longer. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's all true. And Spencer, you were on a mechanical setup, right? You had mechanical shifting? Yeah, I, I do have mechanical shifting. Not for like any reason other than that model was cheaper. I, I was kind of like toying with the idea of using a vpn to buy the like if you go on the european canyon sites they have much better builds at the same price as the mechanical builds. seriously lower in builds in the u.s so i was like oh i'll just buy a nicer bike have it shipped to like a a hotel in in europe and just go get it and then fly home um, when i'm on vacation but i didn't do that but you know i just didn't want to pay the extra money for the for the di2 i mean i am curious the thing i i really am curious in is the is the wireless i i would i would i would be willing to check out the shram wireless yeah we're open to checking out electronic shifting options that are modern and uh and excellent so well spencer i've got my my young partners here who are insisting that we continue with the rest of what needs to happen in the family on this lovely evening Uh, They believe that I spent enough time with gravel and that it's time to proceed to real life. Unfortunately, Andrew had to run, but we will be back at another BWR event in the near future, most likely. So if you're a listener and thinking about going to one, shoot us a message, let us know what you're thinking, and perhaps we can coordinate something. And we'll also be back next week to talk more cycling. So have a great weekend.